So I got two things as we start. First off, after third service today is donuts with dads. So if you're a dad, grab your kids, have some donuts. We're going to feed you some sugar. It's going to be awesome. I don't know what else they're going to do, but you're going to get a donut. And I hear they're getting good donuts, so there you go. It's going to be great. Uh, my second thing I got is a planting roots update for you. So this is where we're at so far. Uh, we are 56% of the way through our journey. Uh, you guys, up to this point, who made pledges are 44% towards that 56%, so you're a little behind, slackers. Uh, and But of all planting roots giving, like people who didn't even go through the journey with us but are giving towards us actually having a permanent home, uh, we're actually 50% of that 56%. So that's, that's, that's good. Let's, now, I got a couple other things. Uh, we got our civil plans this week. They have been turned, you don't clap for me, I didn't get them, All right? Uh, they, they've been turned into the city, so hopefully between the next couple months we'll be able to break ground and start moving dirt, which will be really cool, which is also going to be a pain in the butt for you, because you got to, because there may not be a whole lot of parking, so we've got to figure it out. They're going to try and keep the, the dirt, so you can keep par- like parking the dirt or something, but, you know, just bring a motorcycle, Yes! You know what's so funny? Uh, there's so many... I know I shouldn't say this. Some of you guys are going to be really sad. But uh, there's so many guys whose wives are like, you can't own a motorcycle. My wife will not let me sell mine. I was like, I was going to sell mine. And she's like, you can't sell that thing. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Done. Anyway, so, so there's that. Our plans are in. Uh, at the end of summer, we're going to actually be about uh, 60% of the way through the journey, and we're going the two-thirds way, we're going to do a little reflection and remembrance of planting roots and what it was and, and that kind of thing. Uh, also, we have got some stuff from our landlord here, and we think that we think Wednesday we will have a contract that we can stay in this building next year. It's only half. The other half is double the rent. So, which is still cheaper than going anywhere else, but it's still more than double of what we're paying now. Like, we looked at other places, and it's about three grand less than any other place we could go to, but it's still double. Our rent is really cheap right now. But anyway, it's, it's good. So just throw it out there so you guys are aware. we got to pay rent. So, and it's a lot. Ah, yeah, great. So, uh, welcome to Element. If you are new, there's a lot of information for you. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. Hey, there's, there's also this baby bottle up here, and if you're really godly, you'll take that and fill it with change. I said that first service. Nobody took it. I will make fun of them next week. For that. Anyway, so you grab notes on the community tables around the room. There's some notes that go deeper as well, some questions that take you a little bit deeper. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called UVersion. Click on events in UVersion. You will get those sermon notes and questions and announcements and all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me? Reading to God's Word. It's Acts 7, verses 59 and 60. And it says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to live as your people in this world representing who you are. That you would teach us not to be fearful of things that come our way, but to learn to be a people who are trusting of who you are. That have great faith because of what you have done and continue to do in and through us. Teach us to live as a people who bring you great glory as you give your people great joy. Amen. Have a seat. 
All right, so we are in our series in the book of Acts, the first half of the book of Acts. This is week 20, the big two zero. We're just moving on. We're hoping to see characteristics that we believe should define the church in the world today. And as I say, not every church is going to live these perfectly. If you're element, you may not even live most of these well, but we're trying. Uh, we have a vision to what God calls us to be, though. Uh, I think a lot of people in this room at some point in your life, you may move out of Santa Maria right there. The fricks, they're dead to me. No, uh, but, <laughs> uh, but when that happens, we want you to be able to have things to look for in a church where you move to a certain place, certain characteristics. And again, you're not looking for perfection. No church is perfect, but you want to be in a church that lifts Jesus up above and over people, a church that the gospel is central and that they live on mission. So two weeks ago, I ended my message talking about Stephen's martyrdom by essentially telling you that in our culture, we are taught that when God loves you, everything just becomes easy. Like it's staples and God's like the easy button. You get taught that when God's blessing in your life means everything's just kind of works out. And sometimes that's true, and we love it when it's true, but it's a very bad position to stand on that easy is of God. Because a lot of times when God is in it, it is so hard, you can't see the beginning from the end, because God wants us to trust him and not ourselves. And so I told you about our planting roots things, where we start thought we'd be breaking ground in January, it is now June, we're like, what's going to happen? Got to trust God, because that's still God's plan A. Now in the text today, Stephen is going to be killed, Uh, that is not the easy button, in case you're wondering, by the way. And so I asked you, are you willing to live and die for the gospel? Do you find such peace in Jesus that no matter what comes your way, you are sold out to him? Because even though Stephen's going to die, you'll see that God never forsook Stephen. He used Stephen to spread out his church so the world would know. And I, and I believe this, until our faith is tested, we will never know if what we say we believe is what we actually believe. Because I know people, and I know you know people who say, oh, I love Jesus, and their life kind of melts down around them, and everything is lost. It Really, I think God sends things into our lives so it would test our mettle to see if what we say we believe is what we really believe, so we would really become a people who trust him. Now, Stephen is one of these followers of Jesus. He raises to a place of being a minister in the church. He is a powerful witness to the greatness and the goodness of God. In Acts 6, 8, it says he's been doing great signs among the people. Uh, This could be healings or all sorts of things. I think it refers to Acts chapter 6, verse 7, where you're told that the word of God is increasing, disciples are coming to know Jesus, and it says a great many priests became obedient to the faith. I think that's what it's referring to, that priests are starting to follow Jesus, the ones that stood against them are now following with and for Jesus. That could have an impact on what takes place in Stephen's life. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. That's where we're at. I'll briefly recap what we talked about last week. Uh, The synagogues are places and they're starting to lose a little bit of power over the people. And when someone loses power, somebody else has to pay. Stephen is brought in before this uh, uh, this Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. At this time, the Sanhedrin is the most powerful religious body in the world. They oversaw the whole sacrificial system. There is no one higher in regard to Jewish law than these people. So false witnesses come forward. They testify against Stephen, and either they misinterpret what he said or have outright lies. In Acts chapter 7, verse 1, it says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? The high priest is asking about what these witnesses are saying. He asked Stephen, Is this testimony true? All Stephen has to say is, Nope, it's not true. They're smoking crack. That's all he's got to say. 
But he doesn't. What he does is he launches into the second longest sermon ever recorded in the scriptures. And so he answers the question of what they're saying by retracing the Jewish history and heritage to the people who were supposed to know it the best. Like, have you ever been at a company and they decided to bring in someone to do some type of presentation for you? And these people show up and they got like their PowerPoint and they put their slides up and all they do is read their slides yeah, you're like, I could do this, send me the memo. Well, no, you wouldn't because you wouldn't read it anyway. But, you know, it'd be like, I could read it. You don't need to read it to me. This is kind of what they're feeling until Stephen takes this left turn and he starts to relate their heritage in a way that they never even thought of before. Because instead of Stephen going, we're the Jews, we're so great, Jews, 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 woo, Jews. Instead of doing that, what he starts talking about is how God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to the Jewish nation. And they rejected prophet after prophet after prophet. And Stephen's critique becomes a rejection of their power. And that they are constantly missing the true prophet right in their midst, who is Jesus. Now, at the time of Jesus, there is one big temple system. Okay, one big temple system. When there is sin in your life, you would go to the temple. You would sacrifice an animal. The priest would do this for you. And the blood would then cover your sin. What the priest is doing is he is mediating God's forgiveness. The temple was supposed to be a place of hope, but eventually the temple became a place that had lost all of its meaning. Instead of being a place where God comes to meet with his people, it became where these priests held all this power and it was just all about their money. The priests kind of became like Comcast, where they had a monopoly of everything. And and whatever they wanted, that's what they got, and they had a horrible customer service. Maybe I'm just airing how I feel. I don't know. But anyway, so what would happen is, is you have had this animal and you would raise it. You take it to the temple to sacrifice, to worship God and cover your sin. And you would show up and they'd be like, oh, hold on there. That animal, that animal is not good enough. It hasn't been inspected. We got to look at it. But, you know, right over here in these cages, here we got some animals and they're pre-inspected. They're just ready to go. So how about you give us your horrible animal and you just buy one of these. You'd be like, okay, I'll buy one of those. Really expensive, like like you bought them at the the FFA or something, right? Because it's anyway. <laughs> so so they'd sell you the animal, but then they'd be like, "But you can't buy it with your money because outside money is evil and it's tainted." So they had their own temple currency. You could only buy it with temple currency, so you had to exchange your money, like you go to Chuck E. Cheese. Like yeah, you can't just play a video game at Chuck E. Cheese with your money. You got to buy Chuck E. Cheese money. Doesn't that just burn you? So you'd have to buy your Chuck E. Cheese money, and then you'd get your animal, and you'd go and sacrifice it, and you'd kind of go on to your thing. The next poor schmo that would walk in, they'd be like, your animal's not good enough. And then they would sell them the animal that you just brought in. It's like, great, we love the temple. Now, at Jesus' death, there's this, temp- there's this curtain in the temple. And the, and the curtain is, is separating the most holy place where the presence of God dwells. And when Jesus dies, that curtain is ripped from the top to the bottom, from God to us, showing the presence of God has gone out, and we get to go in, that the temple is no longer needed, and the entire priesthood is done away with or just simply changed. Everything is different. And when people begin to lose power, what do they do? They fight to keep it. Look at our current political system. I'm just saying, okay? So this is what happens after Stephen says all this to him. So Stephen explains this. This is kind of what's going on. Acts 7, verse 54. This is where we pick up from last week. You got it? We're on the same page? You're all mad, Chuck E. Cheese money? Okay, all right. Acts 7, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. That is the Sanhedrin. They're enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. So they needed mouth guards. 
But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus standing there would be a reference that Jesus is witnessing all that Stephen said, all that he said was true, and that even though Stephen is going to die, Jesus has not once left him. Verse 56, and he, that Stephen, said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears, la, 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 like little kids, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, where they throw rocks at you till you die. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul will become the apostle, the apostle Paul, who writes most of the New Testament. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And that's early church language for death, that death is not the end. We will rise again with Jesus one day. Now, Eric talked about Stephen's message two weeks ago, or last week, and two weeks ago I talked about the death of Stephen, how it propelled the church into who and what they were called to be, living on mission. So what I want to do today is bring all this together, chapter 6 and chapter 7, all together in a way that shows you how the priesthood has been redefined. Like Timothy Keller even says this, that Acts 6 and Acts 7 are all about priests and priesthood. How the church understood how they were supposed to live as the people of God, how it takes shape and begins to change the entire paradigm of the world. Uh, In the book, A Biographical History of the Christian Faith, this is what it says. Never in so short a time as any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, without the aid of physical force of social or cultural prestige, achieves so commanding a position in such an important culture. Now, there have been other political movements or other religious movements that have worked through conquest or politics, but none like Christianity. In a brief period of time, Christianity sweeps the empire not by force, but by loving others and lifting up Jesus and pointing everybody to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't get a bunch of converts. It doesn't just get a bunch of converts. It changes the very culture in which it resides. In Acts, you see that these priests were converted to a fuller understanding of what the priesthood was meant to be. Because the priesthood saw an entire community doing what the priests were supposed to do. They were preaching the gospel, the kingdom of God. They were spreading the good news. They were taking care of the poor. And so they looked at this church and they said, here's a whole group of people and they're all acting like priests. And there's this impact in their lives and they are converted. And you have Stephen who didn't just act like a priest. He pointed to Jesus as the true high priest. He said the temple is not necessary anymore and this is what gets him into trouble. The religious leaders understood what Stephen was saying. He didn't, Stephen didn't say, I'm going to destroy this temple. But they got from his message that Jesus makes the entire temple system unnecessary. In their minds, that's, he's going to make the priesthood unnecessary. What are we going to do? And as a result, they go to stone him. He looks up into heaven at the end of his sermon. And, the, and all that he has said has shown him to be true by Jesus standing up there. Give me witness to what he's saying. I see heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He says, I see Jesus, my priest. I see heaven open. Now, Christians did not sweep the Roman Empire just because they were nice. And I think they were nice, and I think they were kind, and all of that, but they weren't just nice to be nice. The gospel come in, it changes their entire lives, their entire dynamic, and they begin to live differently. They live as God originally called his people to live, to be a blessing to the entire world. That they now begin to see themselves as these priests, and that priestly lifestyle changes the world. Now, we have a problem today because when you hear the word priest, the idea of a priest, which is very intrinsic to the passage and to the entire New Testament, we don't really get it. It means very little to modern people, right? You hear the word priest, you're like, 
Priest, okay, I get it. That's like either, you know, when you think of a priest, you think of, uh, at worst, somebody somewhere far away in a big hat that's very intimidating and he looks disapproving at anything you do, like he's constipated and you're the blockage that won't leave, right? That's, that's a priest. Or you look at priests as like pedophiles, or if you're on, you know, the best that people see them is like they're nice and kind of sweet. You've got to go back to what a priest really is and was to understand Stephen and the early church and what they were called to. Uh, Timothy Keller defines a priest as someone who would end to God and also a priest goes into God for others. So I want to talk about those. Okay, first off, a priest goes into God. In every religion, in every culture, up until the most recent modern Western culture, everybody always felt, I am unworthy to go before the divine. I cannot stand before God. If I go to church, lightning will strike me. If I go to church, the building's going to fall down. You ever hear people say that? Like, oh, exactly, because that's the way we kind of feel deep inside. It's why if I'm in a group of people and someone needs to pray for something, they all look at me and say, Aaron, can you pray? Why? Because they see me as being more spiritual, that I'm closer to God, because I'm a pastor and God likes me better, which is true. No, I'm totally kidding. But, but that's what they look. That, that's the view. You know, in the ancient times, you would go in, you'd bring your offering, you would give your needs to the priest, and the priest would go in. The priest would go into God for you. So by definition, then, in your mind, the priest becomes more holy. The priest becomes more spiritual than you. The priest was the person who was better than you. He would go in as your representative, and you would feel better. And a lot of people today think that's what Christianity is like. And some people will even do this in the church. Like, it's like, uh, I need to tell my, my friend needs to know about Jesus. I'll bring him to church and Aaron will tell him about Jesus. Which I will do, because I like talking about Jesus. But our job at Element as a church, churches aren't meant to do all that for you. They're to train you so you can do that. To equip you. It's like sometimes the church, people want the church to do all these activities for all these things. Our job is to equip you to do those things in your neighborhood for these people. So we're not the center of this. We are sending you out to do these things as you are equipped. That's our job. That's our job. But a lot of people still look at the church and they will say, well, you know, the church has that pastor there. And that's the guy that's more holy than everybody else kind of causes a little backlash. And they will say things like, well, in ancient days people feel that way, and our culture is pushing really hard against this thing that says, today, I don't feel any shame, I'm okay, everything's so wonderful with me. But I beg to differ with that, because I think everybody does feel that inside a little bit, even when we deny that we do. Like, you ever show up to some place and you are overdressed, or in my case, usually underdressed? You just, you feel like a little bit like I'm out of place here. Uh, I once did this wedding for the Mark Stones, <laughs> and they were like, oh, we're just going to be dressed so casual. It's going to be like t-shirt and jeans, be great. So I, I show up, and they're like, he's in a suit, and she's in a dress. And I'm like, what? You know, I felt totally awkward. And they, they still feel bad to this day about it. And they should. No, I'm just kidding. You know, and uh, one time I, I got to sit in the back of the U.S. Supreme Court when they were hearing a case. And usually I will talk through everything. And I didn't say a word. I was because it's palpable in there. It's just like this respect. It's kind of different. Let me make this along your lines, okay? Think about when you go like on your first date, right? You you want to impress the other person. Like if you showed up and you dress like a slob, you dress like a slob because you thought the other person would think that was cool. I guarantee you, you did not show up with a booger in your nose. Like if you pull up, you'd be like, "Am I clean?" Right? You would do that before you walked, and that's because you got to make sure. Am I clean? I, you didn't show up naked because you got to look better than that, right? So you. you you, you cover all the like parts you don't want people to see, and you, act, you know, you, then you try and accent your assets. 
any way that you can, whatever, kind of, kind of like that. Psychologists, especially in religion, call this transference. And transference is when you transfer an anxiety, you have about one authority figure to another. And the Bible talks about this. It's that we all feel like outsiders with God, even if we claim not to. And a lot of people will be like, oh no, I'm an outsider, and it's really cool. And so a lot of people kind of throw that in there. But we still find ways to cover up. It'll be, you know, how do you dress, whether it's beautiful or trashy. Some people dress like death threw up over them with eyeliner and everything at the same time, you know, and, and these people who are outsiders, they'll hang out with other outsiders because, hey, we're all outsiders, but they're a clique, you know, it's, and it's all about choose me, accept me, I want, I want to be in, because we all know deep inside we are unacceptable on our own. There's a side to us that knows that, and so the Bible says we transfer our, sen- our sense of being shut out from God's presence to every relationship, even subconsciously. We know we're shut out because of our sin and that God sees our heart. Like, you ever see one of these old ads for verbal advantage? It says, okay, verbal advantage, they would say this. Increase your word power. People know who you are by your words. Get control of your relationships. Get control of your interviews and increase your word power. What the whole thing was about the whole ad campaign is you know you're not that smart. And you don't look that good. But we'll give you some words so if you use them, you'll look smart. You can be dumb, but you'll look really smart. It's like cover yourself with these words. In reality, those things work because we all feel that the door that's really shut against us is the door of heaven, is the door of God's presence. And because we feel that shame, we transfer it to every other place. How we interact with our spouse, how we interact with our kids, how we treat our parents, how we treat those we like and don't like. Stephen has the audacity to look up and to say, I see heaven open. Stephen acts like a real priest. Stephen acts like he has access. This is why the religious leaders were astonished and why they're so perturbed. They're like, how dare he? Because Stephen talks with boldness. He lays out God's redemptive plan, not being afraid of anything. Why is he not afraid of anything? Because he believed he could really stand before the face of God. And when you stand before the face of God, you don't have to be afraid of anything. And you get to speak and talk about the goodness that you know and live in. Stephen acted like a real priest. Priests go in. That made those priests furious. And the crazy thing about what Stephen said is that anybody could go in. Because of what Jesus had done, anybody can now go in. That's his message. Heaven is open. And you know what? That message is true. In 1 Peter 2.9, I think your notes say 2 Peter, but it's 1 Peter 2.9. It says, but you are a chosen race. Who's the you? It's plural. You, okay? You are a chosen race, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, out of your shame, and into his marvelous light. The you he's talking about is all of us. It's crazy. We are the ones who get to go in. And we, as those who trust in Jesus, now are to be his priests and speak that message to the world. That's the reason why they accuse Stephen of breaking the law. They didn't just say, oh, he speaks against the temple, which he kind of did. They said, oh, he broke the law, which he didn't. I mean, the last thing Stephen says in his sermon, which you saw last week, is he says, you stiff-necked people. I mean, in our culture, it means something totally different. Like, oh, yeah, my neck does hurt. I could could use some soma, you know. But, I mean, in this culture, that's like a a slam. You just just don't say that unless you're, like, fighting words right there. You stiff-necked people. He says, you talk about the law, but you don't, you've never kept it. God sent his righteous one and you rejected him. And he simply tells them what the law said, that the law and the temple are always going to be a failure to bring you to God. That's not a new teaching. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28. Exodus 28. Second book in the Bible. Easy to find. 
Exodus 26 through 30 teaches how this tabernacle, this house of God is supposed to be built, how these sacrifices are meant to be made, how the priests are to dress. If you read the description of the garments of the priests in Exodus 28 and 29, they're made of scarlet and blue and gold and linen and white. It's amazing. But right in the middle of all this description in Exodus 28, starting in verse 36, of what the priests would wear, this is what it says. And you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a blue cord. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. That's me. No, I'm just kidding. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. And I read that and you're like, I have no idea what, what that means. But what it means is that Stephen is right. What Stephen said is true. Stephen says those priests and those sacrifices could never get you in. He says there is iniquity, sin, even in the holy things. The priests dressed beautifully. They washed. They prayed. They tried to get their hearts as best as they could, but it was never good enough. That verse tells you in the Old Testament that even their holy things were filled with sin. And so the idea of a priest, of somebody who is better than you, does not exist unless that high priest is Jesus himself. That's the only place it exists. And so a good question for us becomes, do you know the iniquity of your holy things? The places where you think, I'm so righteous, I've got this so together, I'm so much better than everybody else. What's the iniquity in your holy things? Timothy Keller writes this, I try to repent, but if I ever look at my repentance, I see it is filled with false motives. I try to obey, but it's always halfway there. Even my motives are impure. Oh, the iniquity of my holy things. See, Stephen knows that nobody has ever really obeyed the law. A priest could not bring you to God, so God sends his righteous son. He sends Jesus, and now those who trust him are righteous. They get to go in because they are called to be priests. You are called, you are chosen, you are redeemed, you are loved. This is what Jesus does. And he says, if you reject God's righteous one, there is no hope for you. You have to understand, Christianity has the highest and the lowest standards. I mean, highest standards because every religion says, you know, try your best. Maybe God will love you. It'll be okay. But God says, I'm going I'm to only accept perfect. That's the highest standard. But then Christ comes and pays that for us and invites everybody in. And that's the lowest standards. Even us, knuckleheads, we get to go in. So the second thing is that a priest went into God for others. Again, you know, the Christian faith says you've got to be perfect to get in, but then says Jesus has done it for you. So on the one hand, it has those highest standards, but also has the lowest because we all get to go in. Again, every religion says, try your best, live up to the standards. Maybe God will let you in. And Christianity says, you know, try your best. <laughs> Nobody gets in by trying their best because God is completely perfect and completely just and completely holy. But we have a righteous one who has fulfilled that. And because our righteous one, Jesus, our high priest, has fulfilled that, he has imparted that righteousness to us. We belong to him. He has done it for us. Blaise Pascal said Christianity is amazing because every other religion can either deal with your pride or your despair, but not with both. He says only Christianity destroys both pride and despair. He said every religion out there creates proud people or depressed people. What Christianity does is it first shows you a law that is unattainable. You're like, I'm so good, look at me. And Christianity is like, nope, you're a loser too. Right? And it's like, oh, I'm totally depressed. But then it shows you a Savior who has stepped in and paid the price for that and took away your sin and away your shame and lifts you back up again. You're like, and your depression goes away because you understand that He has done both. Our pride and our despair are both taken care of in the person of Christ. That's the reason Jesus is called our high priest. 
Jesus lives the perfect life. He dies the perfect death. He imparts his righteousness to us. Stephen says, heaven is open because our high priest, Jesus, stands before the right hand of the Father. And because Jesus is our high priest, now we get to live and be priests to the world. So what does that mean for us? I'll give you six things I think Acts talks about about being a priest in the world. First are, is that priests mediate the divine. Let me tell you what that means. A priest puts the divine on display. If you went to a temple in the ancient world, you would then see the priest in that temple. How would you know what the God was like of that temple? You would look at the priest of that temple. What did they do? How did they eat? How do they live? How do they move? How do they live their family? Do they squeeze the charmin? You know... Whatever, that, you know, it's all that. that. The priest would put that God on display. A priest shows the divinity that that God is. Priests represent. What do priests do? How do you represent? Second thing is priests would care for others. The Bible tells you that if you and I think that we're saved by our good works, we will always look down on others who are not doing as good as us. In Matthew 25, on the last day, the judgment day, it says Jesus is going to be able to tell the false Christians from real Christians by how they cared about others. Thirdly, priests are humble. If you know that you are saved by grace alone, that you go into the Father because of Jesus as your perfect high priest, your life becomes one of humility and service. Priests have their hearts bound up with people. They are advocates for people. When Stephen is dying, when they're stoning him to death, he says, Father, don't hold this sin against them. How could he do that? Because he was a priest. Uh, Fourthly, priests have boldness that come from Jesus. Why do we have boldness? Because we get to walk right in. Right in. We just face the God. That, that's where we're at. The, the priests in the Old Testament, they only look beautiful. You know why you are beautiful in God's sight? Because of what Jesus has done. That's why. Fifthly, priests pray for people. There's a lot of people in your life who want nothing to do with Jesus. I know that. But you can still take them before the face of God by praying for them, by taking them in. We're supposed to pray for everybody, even our enemies. Stephen is praying for his enemies. I mean, most of us don't even pray for our friends or our neighbors or our spouses or our, or our families. In 1 Samuel 12, 23, Samuel, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, says to the people, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. A priest is someone who bears people to God on their hearts. Okay? And sixthly, priests are willing to not just die for their people, but for their high priest, Jesus. In the end, Stephen will die. And he is the only one living like a priest. This is the calling that kills us, which is, again, the title of today's message. We live like priests, putting Jesus on display, and if we die, we will see Jesus just like Stephen did. And, you know, I, I think if, if we understand we're saved by grace through Jesus alone as our priest, we will begin to live just like Jesus as well. When we see what Jesus has done for us, what he has given to us, it turns us into a priest for other people. It means that we care about people. Over the years, people have come to Element, and sometimes they will say, you know, that I have a, a nasty path. That's past. That's their words, okay, a nasty, nasty past. And they say a lot of Christians make them feel terrible for their mistakes, like, oh, how could you? You know what priests do? Priests steer people to Jesus. That's what we do. Like, our past is horrible as well. And we just take everybody and we point them to Jesus. We are for people. We are for people knowing Jesus. That's what we're about. It doesn't mean you're condoning a lifestyle. What you're doing is you're taking people to Jesus. You let him take care of it. Because Jesus saves us. He comes to us in our sin. He removes our shame. He restores us to life. The gospel is that God sent Jesus to save us. He has rescued us. And because he has rescued us, he has sent us on mission. 
The calling that kills us means we die to our pride. We kill our self-centeredness. We die to ourselves. We live for him because he has called us to be his priest to this world. Now, uh, my wife and I have this picture of a priest at home. I brought it because I wanted to show it to you. It's dirty because I didn't clean it, not her. But here's this. There's your picture. Looks like you. Wait. Looks like me. My wife wants you to know this will be in our garage cell next week. (laughs) But that's the understanding, guys, that that we are called to be God's priests to the world. When people look at you, they're supposed to see what Jesus is like, how he lives. I mean, Jesus came and rescued us when we were lost and broken. He restores us. So we're to be those who speak and preach and show that as well. This is why we talk about communion every week. Where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. Where you dip it in the wine or the grape juice. Represents his blood that was shed for you and me. Because our great high priest has paid the debt for our sin to bring us back to God. So we can now live in a way that our sins are forgiven. We are restored relationship with God. And now we get to go out. We take people to, to God because of our prayers. We are humble. We reach out. We are filled with the grace and the goodness that Jesus places in our lives. And we go out and we live that. You are his priests to this world. You mediate the divine. You get to show what God is like by how you live. And this is the beauty that communion reminds us of, is that we've all had nasty paths. And yet our God has rescued us even in the midst of that. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you guys to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, they would love to pray with you. I mean, maybe you you never thought about the great honor and the scary thing that it is that Jesus calls us to be his priest to this world. You know, that when most people, you know, see and want to understand what Jesus is, they're going to look at his people. It's why people have such a low view of Jesus today because of how his people tend to live. But we are meant to be those that mediate the divine, that we are those who represent, that we are those who show who he is because our God is good and we're supposed to live that goodness. We are for people, for people coming to know Jesus. There's offering boxes on the sidewalls in the back. Uh, and those are there because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. It's part of being a priest. We give because our God's given to us. Uh, there's food in the back. And grab something to eat. Meet some other people. Maybe go through some sermon notes. Ask a few questions that are in there to go a little bit deeper. And understand some of the stuff that you know God is doing and continuing to do. Like, like how are you living as a priest? You know, Do you take people to God that, they're, quite frankly, you don't care for. But you take them to God on your heart anyway because they need to be taken there. Do you, are you for people to know Jesus? You know, how do you live and display the gospel? And when things get tough and melt down, what happens in your life? What does it look like? Are you still mediating the divine by showing even in the midst of all that you are still loving and worshiping and serving and following Jesus because we are his priests to this world? Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to live and walk and show who you are that as people see us, we would reflect you in our lives. That you would be honored in the ways that we live. And as we walk these roads in our lives and different things come up, that it would always draw us closer into relationship with you. That it wouldn't pull us away from you. It would move us to a place where you are glorified and you are honored and you are loved. 
not just by us, but those that we minister to as your priests. Teach us to love you in ways that lift you up and glorify you. Teach us to spread and live in the joy that you give us. Have us understand that we cannot be proud, but we also should not be depressed. But we should live in a place understanding that you have taken care of all of our sin and all of our shame. And that you are the one who restores us into relationship with you again. And that we in turn would live that out so the entire world would know how great and good you are. That you are our high priest who has rescued and saved us. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.